This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, spring is around the corner the time of the year when the cherry blossoms bloom in Washington, and we make our annual trek there to the National Association of Community Health Centers. Our annual springtime sojourn, and when we look forward to very much to do some important work. It's so gratifying to be in this line of work, uh, delivering health care to the nation's underserved populations, improving the health and well-being of entire communities, and really getting a chance to learn from best practices all around the country yeah. and, and share with other people in this important movement. And with immeasurable rewards come many challenges, Margaret. We're dealing with many complex issues underlying poor health, and it takes a real team effort to foster and maintain good population health in some of our communities. Community health centers across the country have increasingly become centers for community support for a variety of social determinants that directly impact health. And our care delivery model, which embeds behavioral and dental care within the primary care setting, is one that's being replicated outside of the community health center world. Well, as we all know, Mark, but it's always worth saying, these disciplines are not silos. They're inextricably linked. And when you facilitate both the provider care team's ability and the patient's ability to meet all of their health needs in one setting, we see better outcomes. And there's plenty of evidence for that. And part of that integration is about behavioral health and substance abuse and medicine altogether. Certainly one concerning aspect that we deal with now in healthcare is the rising tide of drug addiction and specifically opioid addiction. And that is something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Michael Botticelli is the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House. He's overseeing the president's campaign to battle the opioid epidemic in this country. Now the leading cause of accidental deaths in America. It's a real crisis. And we're very much looking forward to hearing from Director Botticelli's uh, battle plan. We're seeing the effects of the crisis in our own community health centers. We're seeing it in our communities, and this prevalence is distressing. So very important and looking forward to hearing what the the nation's drugs are, though I understand he doesn't like that title, Mark, but what the nation's drugs are (laughs) has in the way of solutions to this very complicated issue. You know, it's also interesting to note that the normally contentious United States Senate put aside their differences on this issue and passed by 94 to 1, Margaret, the President's Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act Great to see this show, even if it's rare, of bipartisanship. I think it does speak to just how important the issue is to everybody. Lori Robertson also checks in, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Michael Botticelli, Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Senate has overwhelmingly passed their version of the president's opioid abuse bill. The Bipartisan Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act earmarks hundreds of millions of dollars to combat the nation's opioid addiction crisis on a number of fronts, creating more bed space for addicts seeking treatment, promoting programs that make the overdose drug Narcan easier to obtain, and promoting education programs for frontline clinicians to consider other options before prescribing the highly addictive painkillers. There were almost 50,000 deaths from opioid overdoses in 2014 alone. It's now the leading cause of accidental death in America. 
Speaking of addiction, CVS is amping up its anti-smoking campaign. The national pharmacy chain suspended all sales of cigarettes in 2014 and has earmarked another $50 million to promote smoking cessation partnerships via their thousands of pharmacies across the country. Their Be the First campaign will partner with a number of organizations, including Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and Scholastic, to accelerate a smoking prevention campaign. While the nation's smoking rate is down to about 15 percent, there's still an estimated 450,000 smoking-related deaths each year. A young woman who'd been the first American woman to receive a uterus transplant has suffered organ failure only a few weeks after the surgery. The surgery had been pronounced a success at the Cleveland Clinic where it took place. It's still very much in the experimental stage, although one woman in Sweden gave birth after receiving a successful uterus transplant last year. Diabetes is a leading chronic health issue in this country, and many are able to control the illness with a combination of therapies, including drugs. People taking metformin, a common type 2 diabetes medication, for several years may be at heightened risk for vitamin B12 deficiency and anemia. That according to a new analysis from long-term data. Metformin helps control the amount of sugar or glucose in the blood by reducing how much glucose is absorbed from food and produced by the liver and by increasing the body's response to the hormone insulin. Vitamin B12 deficiency may lead to nerve damage, which can be severe and irreversible. And want to avoid heart disease and early death? Well, leave the office and embrace some me time. Recently released study shows those who worked 75 hours per week or more doubled their risk for angina, stroke, hypertension, and heart attack. And increasingly, in this connected world, it's more impossible to leave the office behind than ever before. According to this study, though, it's a very good idea. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Michael Botticelli, director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House, where he's coordinating the administration's effort to combat the rising opioid abuse crisis. He joined ONDCP as deputy director in 2012. Mr. Botticelli previously served as the director of the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, as well as in leadership roles at the National Association of State Alcohol and Substance Abuse Directors. He's authored many papers on the subject of substance abuse and treatment. He earned his B.A. from Siena College and his master's in education from St. Lawrence University. Michael, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Great. It's good to be here. Hey, you've got some great news out of the Senate. The word bipartisan is surprising to come out of the Senate, but 94 to 1, uh, they just passed the Comprehensive Addiction and uh, Recovery Act. Anything you can tell the public on what's exciting about this that got great bipartisan support in the Senate? Well, one is the issue of opioid addiction has gotten a tremendous amount of attention in Congress, as well as a tremendous amount of bipartisan support. Uh, You know, we've worked very effectively with Congress as it relates to this, and we're, you know, really happy to see the broad bipartisan support of CARA. Uh, You know, the bill contains many of the components that we have been working on at the White House. But, you know, I will say that we also acknowledge the fact that we need funding and uh, Mm -hmm. funding as soon as possible to 
deal with this epidemic. So the president has proposed $1.1 billion in treatment funding in his FY17 budget, and we look forward to working with Congress in terms of more action, but specifically how we can make sure that our states and locals are getting the resources they need to deal with this epidemic. Well, Michael, it's really almost kind of amazing the degree to which I don't think there is a person left in America that doesn't know that we're in the throes of a national crisis. And you know, beyond those of us engaged in care or treatment or at the community level, this is so much on the front page of every newspaper. Opioid addiction has exploded across the demographic and economic and geographic lines. Uh, yeah. Hard to almost even say that drug overdose is now the leading cause of accidental death in this country. 47,000 overdoses reported in 2014, and I'm pretty sure the number in 2015 will be higher. So the president appointed you as the nation's drug czar last year. I don't know if you like that title, but that's 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 kind of kind of what's out there and and really gave you a charge to confront the crisis on multiple fronts. And it was great to lead off with that positive news on the bill. But maybe for our listeners, how in your eyes have we gotten to this point and and what are the big barriers to moving forward? So to your point, Margaret, which I think is a really appropriate one, this has been such a personal issue for all communities and all people across the United States. You know, I'm amazed when, you know, I talk to people how they have personally known someone who's overdosed, who's Every gotten person. addicted, yeah. who have gotten a prescription for these pain medications when they haven't wanted them. And, you know, you asked me, how did we get here? And, you know, I think that there are a number of reasons. But we know that one of the main drivers is the overprescribing of prescription pain medication in the United States. And, you know, I think it was a well-intended effort to try to appropriately mm-hmm. deal with pain in the United States. But, you know, the pendulum swung so far in the other direction that, you know, we are prescribing, this was a 2012 study that showed that we are prescribing enough pain medication to give every adult American 75 pain pills. And these are often given by well-intended prescribers who have little to no training on addiction, little to no training on safe and effective opioid prescribing. And you can, you know, look back to the beginning of this and watch the direct correlation between uh, the volume of opioid medications we were prescribing and the number of overdose deaths. You know, we know that, you know, these medications were often uh, mismarketed by Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. and portrayed as safe and effective. And that got communicated to many patients. And we are paying the price for that. And, you know, we have seen just the dramatic escalation of addiction and overdoses, as well as things like neonatal abstinence syndrome, Mm -hmm. viral hepatitis uh, that have been tracked to the opioid epidemic. You know, I've been thinking about the uh, sort of course uh, that we've taken in terms of our strategy about dealing with the with the drug problem, and, and we salute former First Lady Nancy Reagan, who kicked off a campaign of just say no. It really did reflect the feeling of the country at that time that this was a matter of choice. And then it seemed to be followed by the stick approach uh, and the criminalization, even small amounts of drug possession. And that led with uh, this enormous overflowing of our uh, prison systems. Can you help us get an understanding of why just say no, as well as the punitive criminal approach in the war on drugs has failed? And, and where are we now? What's the, sure. what's the strategy now? Uh, one of the bright spots that I feel in terms of doing this work 
is our knowledge base and our scientific understanding mm -hmm. of effective prevention, uh, effective treatment has changed dramatically over the past 40 years. And, you know, I, I, I do think the former first lady deserves a tremendous amount mm -hmm. of credit in terms of uh, calling attention to the fact that uh, prevention and particularly prevention for youth was a priority. But we have now just, a, you know, a much larger toolbox in terms of knowing what is effective and evidence-based prevention and effective treatment. You know, our job at ONDCP is to make sure that we are implementing those kinds of programs through our federal grant processes. And we have over-relied on those punitive approaches that I think we have learned that those approaches do relatively little in terms of reducing crime, reducing recidivism, if we're not dealing with the root cause of, of why people became incarcerated, and that was a result of their addiction. And I think we also need to be open and candid that that kind of approach has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we understand that drug policy reform is also about reforming our criminal justice system. And I'm, I hear that echoed back to me by local law enforcement who clearly understand that we can't arrest and incarcerate our way out of this problem. Um, you know, we've seen law enforcement step to the table in very dramatic ways in terms of reducing overdoses. You know, we've seen police forces around the country who try to help overdose victims get into treatment and stay into treatment. You know, law enforcement has a key role to play in keeping our community safe from drug trafficking organizations and from crime. But I think we've come to this fundamental understanding that arrest and incarceration do little to, to reduce drug use and crime in our communities. And, you know, I, I, I think I think that has taken hold much faster than I think anybody, and particularly me, could have anticipated. I, you know, we've just seen tremendous progress, and again, I think tremendous consensus, no matter what your political stripe is, that that should be our approach to drug policy. So it's, it's I think, really heartening to see that we can, you know, continue uh, to focus on making sure that, you know, we're reserving our law enforcement and punitive responses for those people who do need to be in jail. But we're looking at opportunities to divert people away from the criminal justice system, get them the care and treatment that they need to do that. I've often said that, you know, when you look at the people who do get to treatment, very often it's as a result of their involvement with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate that we let people get to the point that their addiction gets to the point where it's an involvement with the criminal justice system that finally uh, gets them into care and treatment. Well, it is very positive to see the transition from treating drug abuse as a crime and instead treating it like the disease that it is. But I, I want to try and go upstream a couple of steps, as I know everyone sure. does, around prevention. And, and you talked about the overprescribing of opioids for pain management and we had CDC Director Dom Frieden on the show not long ago saying mm -hmm. providers play a very dangerous game with these highly addictive drugs because you don't know which of your patients will become addicted very quickly. But I wonder um, if you could talk to us about the approach that you're taking that uh, help reduce the reliance in the medical community on opioid prescriptions for pain management. And also, is there a corollary to approaches that you're taking with the pharmaceutical industry to curtail some of the aggressive marketing practices that have, we think, contributed to the, to the problem? Sure. 
you know, one of the things that you talked about, Margaret, was how do we get farther upstream on this? You know, I think when you look at our drug policy, it stresses a number of different initiatives that we think are important. One, you know, we talked about the importance of primary prevention. You know, the good news is that actually the vast majority of kids in this country don't use drugs or alcohol or tobacco. And, you know, we've seen a decrease in uh, tobacco use, alcohol use, uh, and many drugs. So, so we want to focus on primary prevention. But we also want to focus on things like screening and brief intervention yep. in primary care settings. You know, I often use my own story as an example. You know, I was a kid who came from a home, like many homes that had addiction in it. I started drinking from a very young age, and, you know, and it became problematic over the course of my youth and young adulthood. And, you know, I don't recall ever being screened or having an early intervention by anyone in the medical community. So we've been calling for things like universal screening and early identification and intervention before these problems become very acute. So I think that that's, you know, an important part of the strategy. But, you know, one to the opioid issue uh, specifically, and I'm sure Dr. Frieden talked about this, that the CDC will soon be releasing what we think are very reasonable Mm -hmm. prescriptions prescriber guidelines Mm -hmm. to really prevent the misuse of these medications, very scientifically sound prescriber guidelines Mm -hmm. to really diminish the overprescribing of these drugs. Uh, You know, the other piece that we have been focusing on is drug disposal programs. We know that that about 70% of people who start misusing prescription pain medications are getting them free from friends and family. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're often diverted from meet people's medicine cabinets. So we've been working with the Drug Enforcement Administration to support drug disposal programs to allow people to empty those their medicine cabinets of these highly addictive medications. So, you know, those are kind of two areas that we are focusing on. And then the other area that we're focusing on are the use of prescription drug monitoring programs. Um, you know, these are state-run databases that give prescribers information on someone's prescribing history to really minimize the chances that people are going from multiple doctors and multiple pharmacies to get their prescriptions. So, so we're really trying through a wide variety of efforts to do a better job at preventing drug use from happening in the first place, to do a better job of interventions, but also really looking at, you know, preventing the misuse and addiction associated with these medications. We're speaking today with Michael Botticelli, Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House, where he's coordinating the administration's effort to combat the rising opioid abuse crisis. You know, you oversee a $26 billion agency, and you've got a number of arrows in your quiver. And certainly, while your new strategy is veering away from the punitive criminal approaches, but law enforcement still plays an important role. And uh, more of the nation's police forces are being equipped with Narcan, the antidote to opioid overdoses. And also been a big supporter of the Good Samaritan law. But we still mm-hmm. have just an incredible flow of heroin coming into this country. And maybe you could tell uh, our listeners what's being done to interrupt the flow of cheap heroin in the hardest hit areas. And how's law enforcement piece of the puzzle, uh, that extra arrow in your quiver, being directed? You know, one of the risk factors that go into why someone uses drugs is availability and price. And, you know, we, we have seen tremendous amount of success 
in other areas, particularly tobacco use and alcohol use, where we've looked at price and availability as two good public health strategies. You know, to your point, these are, you know, kind of more arrows, you know, in our quiver in terms of of what we're doing. And we see the same issues as it relates to drug use. You know, one of the reasons why people have been transitioning from prescription drugs to heroin has been the availability and price and purity of heroin in many of our streets. Mm -hmm. So stopping the supply of drugs that are coming into the United States, working with domestic law enforcement and reducing the availability of these drugs is really important. But what we've also been calling and we've also been seeing is building partnerships between public health and public safety. And, and because I think that even our, you know, our public safety folks know that reducing the supply and availability is only one part of the problem. You know, our our strategy is all about that balance between supply and demand. And with the president's FY17 budget, it marks the, the first time in the history of our office and the national drug control budget where we actually have balanced funding between supply and demand. So, you know, part of this is, you know, working with our partner nations uh, to reduce the flow of drugs in the United States, to diminish uh, working with, for instance, Customs and Border Protection and other entities to stop the flow. One, one of the programs that our office funds, it's called the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. That is funds uh, that are given out at the county level to reduce the flow and trafficking and criminal organizations that move in these drugs. But I'm also happy to say that they work hand in hand with public health. And, you know, they understand that we need this kind of comprehensive and 360 degree approach to this if we're really going to make significant inroads into into drug use in the United States. Well, Michael, there's uh, sorry, always the big issue about treatment, right, and capacity mm-hmm. and availability. But there are patients who really need a bed, right? They need an inpatient yep. or residential treatment. And, you know, mostly we hear about cuts, reductions, over-demand. What's your take on that and what's being done to increase the capacity to provide the kind of intensive residential treatment for people who really need that in order to make progress overcoming their addiction? For a very, very long time, we've, you know, largely treated addiction just, you know, kind of in the acute phases and very episodically. And, you know, we haven't kind of implemented a paradigm of uh, addiction treatment according to a chronic disease, you know, making sure that people get long-term care. And so I think there are a number of things that are happening at the federal level to really try to address that. And, you know, first and foremost is the Affordable Care Act. We, we know one of the main reasons why people don't get treatment is because they can't afford it or because of insurance. And, you know, the Affordable Care Act makes substance use disorder treatment one of the 10 essential health benefits. So that's a big help. The other one is implementing the Affordable Care Act with parity with other health conditions. So we know that there have been historic inequities in insurance reimbursement in not treating addiction the same way we do with other medical conditions. So implementing parity becomes very important to make sure that insurers are offering these benefits on par with other health conditions. But even with all those advancements, we know that there are many, many people who still can't get treatment or can't get specific access to a whole continuum of care. And and that's why even despite the fact that over the past several years, we've been increasing treatment budgets that the president proposed over a billion dollars to support enhanced treatment 
treatment efforts in ensuring people have access to high quality care. And the last area that I'll talk about, and this is particularly important in the opioid epidemic, is you know we have three highly effective medications for the treatment of opioid use disorders. And you know we know when you combine those with other behavioral and recovery supports, that they do far better than uh, treatment without these medications. So we have spent a lot of time and effort and money ensuring that people have access to those medications. Health and Human Services put out $100 million to community health centers to support incorporation of addiction treatment and particularly medications into community health centers around the country because we know that sometimes people uh, don't have access to a bricks and mortar treatment program um, but also uh, and have access to community health center. We've been working to um, uh, increase the number of physicians who have uh, gotten training to administer these medications. So so we're really moving on a number of, of fronts uh, to ensure that people have access to a whole continuum of evidence-based care, but particularly medication-assisted treatment. We've been speaking today with Michael Botticelli, Director of the Office of Drug Control Policy at the White House. You can learn more about their work by going to whitehouse.gov slash ONDCP, or you can follow them on Twitter at Botticelli44. And if you're dealing with an immediate crisis and need help, please call 1-800-664-HELP. Michael, thank you so much for your leadership and your work in this important area and for joining us in Conversations on Healthcare today. Great. It's good to be with you, and thanks for the work they do. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We'll look at two claims from a recent Democratic presidential debate on gun deaths and childhood poverty. First, Hillary Clinton said that on average, 90 people a day are killed by gun violence in our country. It's a claim she has made before, and it requires some context. Annual gun deaths do average about 90 people a day, but only a third of those are homicides. Most gun deaths are suicides, a violent act, but not a crime, as some voters may think Clinton's claim implies. According to the most recent figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 63 percent, or 21,175, of the 33,636 firearm deaths in 2013 were suicides. Homicides totaled 11,208, and the rest were unintentional discharges, legal intervention or war, and undetermined. Senator Bernie Sanders also repeated a claim that, quote, we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth. His campaign previously told us the senator was referring to a report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. However, among the 38 countries listed, the U.S. ranked seventh highest in relative childhood poverty. That's behind Turkey, Israel, Mexico, Greece, Romania, and Bulgaria. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com 
We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. No parent wants to hear their young child's chronic health issues require complex and risky surgery. But that was exactly the case for three-year-old Mia Gonzalez, plagued for years with severe life-threatening respiratory issues and multiple hospitalizations. Her doctors discovered the cause was a severe aortic abnormality that would eventually kill her without intervention. Dr. Redmond Burke, head of the pediatric cardiovascular surgery at Nichols Children's Hospital in Miami, would once have deemed her condition inoperable. So he chose a new tactic, create a 3D printed model of her actual heart to offer surgeons a chance to map out an approach to the complex surgery that would not only minimize the high level of risk, but also yield a more hopeful outcome. This was printed out because she was thought to be inoperable. And by having this type of model, we were able to conceive of an operation that hadn't been done before, connecting the small veins from her lungs up to her heart. Dr. Burke said he carried the heart around with him for weeks, analyzing the problem from every conceivable angle, sharing ideas with colleagues until they agreed upon the best surgical solution. Her operation was extremely successful, and she's recovering very well in the hospital now, and it's just about ready to go home. And now her life, instead of being uh, measured in terms of days and weeks, is going to be measured in terms of years and decades. Dr. Burke said that prior to 3D printing technology like this, they would have deemed her case too risky to chance. This offered a visual problem-solving solution before subjecting his young patient to complications from risky surgery. While scientists say creating stem cell-generated 3D-printed organs for implementation is still years away, this method of deploying 3D technology could help surgeons everywhere create workable solutions to complex surgical problems. A 3D-printed model of a patient's organ offering surgeons a visual tool to help tackle complex surgical dilemmas, leading to better surgical outcomes for high-risk patients. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.